All right, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, We are going to be finishing up chapter 10 and moving into chapter 11 this morning. Uh, Chapter 10 contains some of the important context that we will need for the the one verse that we will really be focusing most of our attention and and thought on this morning. So we will start in chapter 10. But if you need a Bible, make sure and raise your hand so our guys can bring one to you. They'd love to serve you in that way. We've also got some note sheets and pencils going around. And that will hopefully be an aid to you as you study the Word together. This is not just an, an academic exercise. Remember that as we seek the Lord in His Word, that we are not just simply putting more information into our storehouse. We are not just putting another notch in our belt of spiritual disciplines, but we are rather worshiping the Lord as we submit our hearts and minds to Him. As we think more accurately about God, we worship Him better. So when we come to the Lord's Word together... We're really worshiping Him. We are, we are praising His name in our submission to the Word as we acknowledge its, its authority and its power in our lives. So have that heart, that worshipful heart, uh, ready to go as we get into God's Scripture together. Now this week as I was preparing the sermon that you're about to hear, I sit in my office and I was looking out of the window. I heard a car pull up and sometimes I peek to see if it's the UPS truck or somebody. And, and, a, and a woman got out of the car and it's a face that I had not seen for more than 10 years. It was a familiar face, but it was somebody that I hadn't spoken to for over a decade. And so my, my social media game, I will admit, is not stellar. And one of the unfortunate side effects of that is that when people move away, um, I tend to not stay in contact them, with them as faithfully as I should. And this friend of mine, her name is, is Debbie Brennan. She had moved to Colorado, um, and she had, since I had learned, moved back to California again. But even though we hadn't spoken in such a long time, we greeted each other with a big hug. Take that, COVID. We uh, quickly began to share what kinds of things the Lord had been doing in our lives. We rejoiced in that reconnection. See, Debbie and her husband, Gary, were, hus- were uh, a team in Sunday school when I was a kid. When I was 14, 15, 16, and I was going to Trinity Baptist Church in Livermore, they faithfully prepared each Sunday to come in and teach rugrats like me how to understand Jesus Christ, how to understand His Word, and how to to live it out. To a young guy who didn't grow up in a Christian home, who didn't have the advantage of being surrounded by people who were constantly teaching me the Word and pointing me towards Jesus Christ, I can't tell you how important Debbie and Gary and Tom and Cheryl Chance and Meryl and Donna Smoke Anne-Marie Moore, Jean and Vicki Coates. I can't measure the impact that these faithful men and women had on my young and impressionable heart. I was blessed to have a mother and a father who loved me. I was blessed to have a stepmother and a stepfather who loved me and they cared for me and provided for my physical needs. But I needed spiritual mothers. I needed spiritual fathers, people who were an example to me who could push me towards Christ And it could teach me faithfulness in the way that they walked. And so as I watched the way they treated their spouses, as I observed the way they parented their kids, as I and some of those kids were my best friends, and I was in their house day in and day out, as I observed the way that they handled their trials and the tribulations and heartaches of life, I remember very vividly how Debbie handled it when her husband Gary battled cancer. And he passed away shortly before I went off to college. But to see them go to Christ in those times of trial and to not lose heart, 
but to praise the Lord God no matter what was going on in their lives. Those were lessons that stuck with me. These were the people that I followed in my life. And so it's not a small blessing that this very week, Christ is letting me preach to you about the importance of righteous imitation, of being able to discern when someone around you is exhibiting a biblical expression of Christianity and having the humility of heart to follow that example with gladness. So we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which is where we were last week. We're going to read starting in verse 31, and then we're going to let that passage flow into the first verse of chapter 11. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Let's ask the Lord's guidance as we think upon these verses today. God, we thank you for the help that your Holy Spirit is sure to give us right now as we consider the idea of following people who follow you. Lord, we know that, uh, that we need examples. We need to learn from others that we don't just inherently know what to do. And so, Lord God, teach us and use every resource that is available to help us to become more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, it would be wonderful if we could just look upon Christ and do everything that he did, but you know our hearts, you know our minds, you know the ways of man. And so it is very useful and helpful for us to have tangible examples of faithfulness that we can learn from. Help us to not let pride have such a grip on our hearts that we might convince ourselves that we don't need anyone's help, that we can handle it all by ourselves. I pray, Father, that you would help us to recognize the wonderful beauty and benefit of being connected to the body of Christ and to be able to draw from the experiences and the knowledge and the wisdom of others who have walked before us. We praise you, God, for all this, and we look forward to the fruit that will be reaped by faithfulness in Jesus' name. Amen. In the verses that we just read, Paul gave the all-encompassing command that followers of Jesus are to do everything that they do to the glory of God. Our faith and our belief should manifest in our doing. And anyone who's tried to abide by that command knows that it isn't an easy thing to do. There are, there are times when we try to live our lives for the Lord, but we don't know exactly how to do that. We don't know exactly how to best glorify God with our choices, with our actions and our thoughts and with our words. But there are others who have gone before us who were determined to live so completely to Christ. Paul was such a man. And in chapter 11, verse 1, he offers the example of his own life as a pattern for others to follow. Now we know there are inherent risks in, in, in imitating man. There are inherent risks in imitating man. Even a godly man like Paul. What, what do we see when we examine the thoughts and the ways of man. We see a creature at its very best who has imperfect perceptions. Whatever knowledge man has acquired, it is not inherent to him. He got it from some other source. What we gain, we gain by observation or by being taught from someone else. 
And what a man observes is often short of the full story that he needs in order to rightly know what is happening. Even if the information that we act upon is good, often that good information is not enough. Often there is more that we need in order to make the best decisions or to respond properly. A friend of mine recently bought a, a car from back south. And he did his due diligence the best he could. He looked at all the pictures. He asked a lot of questions to this dealership. He was very excited about this classic car. And it was sent back to him on a truck and got his family in the car. And within 100 miles, one of the shocks, they hit a bump and just punched right through the floor of the car. And then within a few more miles, the rear spring had broken off. And before they knew it, they took it to a mechanic and started peeling back the layers. And though he had good information about the car, he didn't have enough of it. There was rust that had been covered over with a, a bedliner kind of material to make it look like somebody had restored the car when in reality it was hiding a cancer that was rendering that car essentially useless unless he were to put thousands and thousands of more dollars into that vehicle. So our perceptions often fall short of what we need to know. Our best human examples, those who we would love to follow because we see them as shining bright lights of godliness, even they lack full understanding, don't they? Even when we act on good information, there may be more than meets the eye. And after we do our best to observe and to gather what knowledge we need about a situation or a subject, there are more steps we have to take as human beings. The way we function is that we use our human intellect, our reason, to make sense of what we've observed. And then we have to formulate a plan for action in our own lives. How do we respond to what we have learned? But because man is such a limited creature, what we see is often colored by our desires and our limited experiences. Man is a creature with imperfect desires. We don't want the things that we ought to want in life. So often, our hearts are drawn to that which has no lasting value. We go after what is sparkly and new. We go after what is novel instead of what is substantial. See, we have to be careful about who we follow because there are inherent risks in following people because they lack what they need. They don't understand what matters the most. We're often motivated by something far less noble than truth and love because we treasure worthless things. Our decisions can be based on skewed values. So our own self-preservation and advancement means more to us at times than the glory of God does. How can we be sure that the person we're trying to follow is motivated by the glory of God as Paul urges us to be? Man is a creature not, with not only imperfect desires, but imperfect morals. What is best is not obvious to us, and what is right is often not attractive to us. We see this on Friday mornings when we go out in front of the clinic and we try to urge people to not end the lives of their babies, that this is murder. And yet others will come and shout obscenities at us and, and show such great rage because they have convinced their hearts that choice is the highest virtue. And that if they're going to stand for truth and love people, the best thing that you could do is secure their choices. They've been so deceived by the society that they live in that they believe they're the righteous warriors fighting for truth. And in, in the meantime, thousands of babies are killed each year in a legal way in America. So man does not have perfect morals. Whatever example man can provide for us, he cannot give us a perfect picture of what we need to see. And for that reason... In imitating man, we may very well find ourselves replicating that man's weaknesses. When we imitate man, we must do so knowing that the pattern we follow 
could be flawed. And at best, it is not the perfect standard that it should be. Man is not perfect because of what he lacks. He lacks so much that he needs to be perfect. But man is also not a perfect example because of what he has, because of what he possesses. Every man is born with a crippling disability of soul, a sin nature. We read about it in Psalm 51 where David confesses his sin to God. He says, For I knew my, know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And if you know David's story, you might be thinking, yeah, he did. Man, David blew it. He slept with another man's wife. He tried to cover it up. When that didn't work, he sent that woman's husband into the battlefield and then pulled the troops back so that he'd be killed. He essentially murdered somebody. And I'm really glad I didn't do what David did. Yeah, there's wicked people in the world. But no, look at what verse 5 says. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David's not just confessing there about what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. He's confessing his inherent sinfulness. And it is inherent sinfulness that was not exclusive to him. Our propensity for sin is always and ever before us. And it has been since the moment we were conceived. Sin's not just a function of what we do. It is a feature of who we are. Descended from Adam, the first sinner, man cannot help but manifest the rebellion that he has inherited from that first Adam. Colossians 3.5 speaks that about what is earthly in us. And it lists various sins of the flesh, showing us that this is not something outside of us that we need to avoid like a minefield, but that the danger is within us. It is intrinsic in our being. Romans 6, verses 20 through 22 declares that apart from faith in Jesus Christ, we are slaves to sin. That it has a ruling power over us. Struggle all we want. We don't have freedom if we don't have Christ. We are subject to the draw, the pull of rebellion. And this is not, unlimited. This is not limited to an unlucky few. Like I mentioned earlier, Isaiah 53, 6 says, All all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned. And it's, if you didn't get it, the first part says everyone. He makes sure, he emphasizes here that this is universal. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on the Savior, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. We confess this as we sing to God in worship. Prone to wander, Lord, I fear it. Prone to leave the God I love. That means my heart is angled naturally towards sin. It is only the supernatural work of God that points me in a different direction. We confess it in our prayers as we go to the Lord together. Our request for forgiveness is constant. We don't even know the extent to which we offend our God because error is second nature to us. And so repentance must be something that we work in every day of our lives. Even those who have Christ should ever have in their minds this this brokenness of heart that would put us on a path to destruction if God was not constantly holding us to himself. C.H. Spurgeon, a famous Baptist preacher, said in one of his sermons on this topic, as the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. This nature of sin is cause enough for us to be cautious about the examples 
that we decide to imitate in life. But there are even more reasons to step carefully. In addition to this built-in predisposition to break God's law, man possesses an unjustified confidence in his own limited knowledge. We spoke earlier about what man lacks, that he doesn't lack full perspective on life, and yet man so often runs through life as though he understands and comprehends all that he needs to know. He doesn't seek wisdom in others. This is, there's very often a sense that what we want is right just because we want it, not necessarily because it is best for us. And so people naturally feel more comfortable imitating those who are confident. But the sinful are often confident without any reason to be so. And so the fear of God is, is lacking in them. They are self-deceived about their independence from God. They walk to, towards destruction without care, and they joyfully lead others into the same dark fate. So we need to be careful about this, this confidence that we often think of as reason to imitate or follow someone else when often great sinners are confident in their sin. Man possesses a reckless freedom. Freedom is, of course, a gift of God, that the Lord gives us autonomy to choose certain things. But it is a gift that man constantly misuses. God has granted man a degree of, 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 of latitude in the choices that he is allowed to make, but that freedom is never pure independence from God. In granting us limited freedom over our own faculties, God not, has not elevated mankind to the position of Godhood as he is. He has not made him sovereign over anything. We don't have God-like freedom, but we do have a degree of freedom. And sadly, we treat that freedom so often as if it is a license to operate completely independently of the will of the one who made us. How can we put men as our examples? How can we put human beings as our role models if they're capable of this kind of error? Because we're not like the sovereign God is. Every time we exercise our limited freedom, our actions will have consequences and will create a ripple effect to those around us. My expressions of freedom are going to affect you. And the way that you use your freedom is inevitably going to affect me. No one is truly isolated. So we are all, in some sense, dependent upon one another. Even most, more so, we are dependent upon the God of creation. Our choices and freedoms are not expressed in a moral vacuum. So that the things that we do with our freedom will significantly affect the way that God interacts with us. For the non-believer, our breaking of his law brings judgment upon us. It makes us his enemy, and his wrath rightfully rests upon us if we do not have forgiveness in Jesus Christ, if we've not been washed by the blood that we sang about a few moments ago. And even in the case of the believer, if we are trusted in Jesus Christ, but if we disregard the sovereignty of our God, then a good father will do what a good father does. He will chastise us. He will correct us. He will help us to have a conviction of spirit so that we will not continue to walk in a way that is ultimately destructive to our hearts. Now, here's the dangerous part, friends. If we exercise our freedom by breaking God's command and committing sin against Him, the judgment that rebellion earns doesn't necessarily happen right away. We've seen this, haven't we? Where someone does something that is blatantly wrong, and we think that person deserves to pay a penalty for what they did. And yet, somehow their life goes well. Somehow they become financially blessed anyway. Sometimes people seem to like them and approve of them. And you think, where is the justice in this? 
It might take quite a while before the wages of our sin really began to manifest themselves. And what this means for the person who's looking to imitate others in Christ, we may follow the example of someone who is exercising their unchecked free will only to find in time that they were acting in ways that are offensive to God. And now our own replicate actions are also in violation of the law because we followed the wrong pattern. It is for this reason that the wisdom of God's word consistently warns us that the patterns of man are not to be trusted with any kind of absolution. You will not find a human being walking the earth who is a perfect example of godliness for you. Isaiah 2.22 says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is but breath, for of what account is he? We often find ourselves really enamored with a human being. We think, wow, that person's really got it together. I wish I had the prayer life that guy had. I wish that I was as loving as she is. I wish that I had the willingness to serve and, and the, the, the drive of that man or, or of those people. And we often think more highly of people than we ought to. Every man, even men who seem very trustworthy, are still sinners in need of grace. The last couple of weeks, we've had good reason to heed these kinds of warnings. Uh, I don't know if you're up on the news in the SBC, but as if we didn't have enough to contend with with the churches that are involved with our association, video recently surfaced of the newly elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Ed Litton, preaching a sermon that is in many parts a direct copy of a sermon that the outgoing president, J.D. Greer, preached three years earlier. And when I say almost a direct port, they, they match the video up in such a way that you can see that Full phrases are word for word the same. And even personal anecdotes, illustrations used in the sermon by J.D. Greer were used by Lytton as if they happened to him when in reality they did not. So this has ignited a, a plagiarism controversy that is hugely impacting the SBC. There appears to be a more widespread problem of pastors who are too busy with other things to really take the time that's necessary to labor in the word for themselves. And for just a few dollars, thanks to the miracle of the internet, a fully prepared manuscript can be purchased online so that your people can think they're getting the best scripture teaching. And you save yourself 10 to 12 hours of prep. Now, to be fair, the role of a preacher is a unique one in that if we are doing our job well, then the same kind of preaching should be happening all over the world that is happening in this pulpit today. We don't have the freedom to craft our own message. We don't have a full week to figure out how to convince you to think exactly how we think with our opinions and our points of view and our political leanings. Rather, we are to preach the gospel to you. The word is our subject. We go and we study it. So biblical preachers should all be preaching biblical messages. We preach Christ. We're all working from the same book in theory. But it is unethical, dishonest, lazy, and illegal to make use of someone else's intellectual property and then try to just pass it off as if it is your own. Can a preacher benefit from commentaries, from the insights of other preachers' sermons, from walking in the patterns and traditions of faithful leaders? Yes, of course they can. I've referenced several volumes of great writing on the scriptures that we study each week. But we have a personal responsibility to labor in that word. 
So we've got to be careful, friends, who we follow and how we follow them. Nevertheless, even though there are inherent risks in imitating people that we see as righteous and holy, imitation is an inherent feature of our design. We cannot deny that that is how people learn. That is how we grow. We won't advance if there is not something for us to advance towards. In fact, the most significant feature of mankind as a created being, the most significant part of our design, is the fact that God has given us the great honor that we are gifted the image of the one who created us. That's one of the basic tenets of mankind. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, this doesn't mean that we are of the same kind of being that God is. We are not junior gods who possess the features that only God has, the things that make him holy. The one and the only being who is like God is God. There's no one else like him. So we're not omniscient. We don't know everything. We're not omnipotent. We don't have the power to do whatever we want. We're not omnipresent. We can't be at all places at all times. We're not immutable. We will change. We will shift over time. God never does. We are not eternal as he is. There were, there were you know, countless amounts of years where we didn't exist, but God did. He always has. We are not impassable like God, who is not shaken by emotions, who does not go with the winds of change. But in some important ways, we do, as a special expression of God's creation, act as representatives to him representatives of the one who sovereignly reigns over all things. We bear what is in Latin called the imago dei, the image of God. This is not a feature that we earn, friends. You don't qualify yourself for this. It is given to all human beings. So every human being, no matter how wretched in sin they are, no matter how exalted they are as an example to others, every human being bears the image of God. It is not a feature that is reserved for the elect. Even lost people bear the image of God, which is part of the reason why we should mourn over sin. Because those who live lives of sinfulness are disgracing the image of God that God has allowed them to bear for a time. I want you to meditate for a moment about the significance of this gift. We are by design a reflection of something greater than ourselves. We are not so much a thing unto ourselves, we are a thing that gets its very identity borrowing from another. Do you see that? The human beings aren't special because they're human beings. They are actually special because of the reflection of God in them. From the moment we're born, we're looking outside of ourselves to learn how to be what we are. And it is, to me, extremely ironic how completely counterculture that idea is today. By saying that we cannot hope to have an identity that is free from the context of things outside of ourselves is abjectly offensive to the popular mindset of our Western culture. You look at the bumper stickers on cars around and the t-shirts people are wearing, you're going to see things like, to thine own self be true. Be yourself and no one else. Look deep inside who you are. Don't let anyone tell you what to do or how to think. Be a nonconformist. These are the mantras that you'll hear again and again and again in secular America. The Western mindset wants to cast the idea of external dependence, of depending on somebody else for your identity, as somehow tragic, 
as if the greatest examples of humanity should be wholly what they are apart from anyone else's influence. Those who find their meaning and purpose outside of themselves are often scoffed at as being weak, incapable people who need to be propped up by a crutch. But examine that attitude for a moment. Do you recognize the absolute pride in thinking that we don't need anyone else, anyone to shape what we are as if everything that I needed to be or understand or know is inherent in me? Do you see how proud that is? How arrogant? If you were to be born and then immediately placed in isolation, a tiny little baby, would you ever learn to talk without the help of others? Would you be able to teach yourself to read as an independent little human being? If you were somehow fortunate enough to survive the most vulnerable days of your life without the protection of someone or something greater and stronger than yourself, how much of your basic motor skills would you even gain if you were on your own and didn't have other human beings to pattern your actions and your thoughts towards? How quickly we forget the weakness and vulnerability of our younger years. Praise God for providing for us what we need to have life and breath and the millions of small provisions that come from outside of ourselves that we depend upon that we cannot always provide for ourselves. It is not only proud to act as though we don't owe some of our identity to anyone or anything outside of ourselves, it is outright dishonest to proclaim that we don't need anyone else. I ask you this question. If you're sitting in your seat with your arms crossed right now, you don't like what's being preached because you've grown up as an independent, self-sufficient person. You don't like this idea of finding who you are from outside of yourself. I want to ask you this. Which rebels have taught you that you don't need to teach anyone to teach you anything? Which rebellious person preached that gospel to you because you learned it from somebody else? You didn't get that from within yourself. You got it from somebody else. If you're really that dependent, then why did you need some rebel evangelist to convince you to be a rebel too? To shuck the trends and walk down your own path. The obstinate thought that you are all that you need and that your identity should be reared solely from your own conscious psyche is absurd. And it has to be taught to us by others who have a vested interest in spreading this myth of abject independence. Think about what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a person of truth and love. How can you even love other people if you are completely independent of them? The more you try to stand as an island in and of yourself, the less you can experience the beauty of community and care for other human beings. Christ, who is in every way the truest man, the purest form of man, Jesus Christ displayed radical dependence upon the Father in his time on earth. He never disregarded the law of God. He never said, I can do this better. He worshiped the Father according to the covenant that was born into him. He gave him glory. He magnified him. He directed praise to the one who had, who had made all things. He adamantly committed to prayer, to seeking the Lord and spending time in communion with him every day. He said the words that the Father told him to say. He did the things that the Father told him to do. We, we read this in John 5, 19 and in other places in that gospel. They were his will as well. Those words were not things he was objective to, but he accomplished nothing of his earthly mission independent of the Father of the Holy Spirit. His work in no way departed from the path that had been set for him by the divine counsel of Father, Son, and Spirit. 
If Christ exercised dependence while he was here in the flesh, what makes us think that we can be independent, walking our own path, all on our own, of our own desires and will? It is not a matter then, friends, of whether you will imitate someone or not. It is a matter of which pattern you will determine to follow. Which example will you put in front of yourself? The highest greatness you could ever achieve would be perfect imitation of Jesus Christ. And this is not lost on Paul. He's not bought into the delusion of personal independence. He understands the degree to which mankind is dependent upon examples to imitate and models to follow. And so Paul urges his brothers and sisters to look to him as a pattern worthy of imitation. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This advances an idea, actually, that he began sharing earlier in chapter 4, where he reminded the Corinthians of the unique role that God had allowed him to play in, in, the, in the life of that church. 1 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 15, says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere, in every church. So Paul had personally led many of these believers who are reading this letter initially, he had led them to the faith in Christ. His early example had set them on a course to faithfully serve and obey Jesus. The fact that he was in some ways like a spiritual father to them should have made it quite natural for these Corinthians to see his own life as an example that they would be willing to, father, uh, to follow. But sadly, often, uh, we don't appreciate the wisdom that our fathers and our mothers give to us, do we? We think we know better, and so the Corinthians were struggling with this. But understand, Paul is not arrogant in his instruction. It isn't as though there are no other examples that they might turn their attention to. He mentioned there in chapter 4 that the Corinthians had many guides, right? Men like Apollos and Peter and Timothy were patterns worthy of their attention as well. This proved to be true in all the churches. Philippians 3.17, Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So he's not trying to corner the market here. Paul's not trying to be the only role model for the Corinthians. or He's not trying to put himself on some kind of a spiritual pedestal that they should become reliant only on him. That would run completely counter to his earlier urging that the Corinthians resist every temptation to make celebrities out of their preachers, to make idols out of their church leaders. Christianity is not some religious pyramid scheme where the more people you get under you directly, the more you get blessings back from them. That's not how it works. Paul's goal is not to see himself reflected in other Christians but to see the Christ that he follows reflected in all other believers. The value in imitating the Apostle Paul is rooted in the fact that he himself has fixed his attention on the one object worthy of imitation, which is Jesus. Friends, can there be a greater life that we could emulate, that we could try to replicate than Jesus, the Son of God? If we had time to go back and read through the book of Hebrews, we would see the abundant evidence that the life that Jesus lived was the most authentic life a man could possibly live. He was the better servant of God. He was greater than the angels. He fulfilled the law of God. He never sinned one time. This is what made him 
eligible to be the perfect sacrifice for us. When he went to the cross, he had no debt to give to God, so his righteousness was offered on behalf of us. Jesus, as God in the flesh, struggled with none of the limitations that we discussed earlier. His perception of what is right is flawless. He always knows what is good. His motives are always pure because he cannot sin. His example will not mislead us because there is no deception in him. He is absolutely true. He serves as the universal role model because Jesus is eternal and has always existed. And his name is proclaimed not just in one locale, but throughout the world. Not just to one society or one culture, but to all who will listen. We see Jesus as the greatest example. So why not just imitate Jesus straight away? Why is this verse not just imitate Jesus? Paul could have saved some words there, right? Now, there is no denying, though. If, if we take this for what it is and really try to apply it to life as a Christian, there's no denying. Paul's personal exposure to Jesus far exceeded the, the exposure that the other people in Corinth had experienced. The Corinthians had not spoken face-to-face -face with Jesus Christ. Jesus came and met with Paul and spoke to him. The perfect example of Christ had not personally come before them. The apostles were those who had walked with Jesus, who saw him resurrected in the flesh. What they knew of Christ, these Corinthians, what they knew of him, they needed to acquire from somebody who truly knew him. They didn't have that knowledge personally. And this is what makes an apostle an apostle, right? They saw Jesus with their own eyes, Paul and Peter and John. They had been commissioned by this God, sent out by him directly for the express purpose of showing the world who Jesus was and what he had done. The role of the apostles was to set forth two important foundational precedents for the church, one being the example of their own committed and faithful lives. And the other, more important than the first, was to give a trustworthy record of the word of God. We have what we need in what God has provided. In these examples of godly men and in the record of them in the scriptures, we have all that is needed for godliness. We don't need prophets running around the world now saying, this is how you should walk. It's different than what you heard before. There's a new way to follow Christ. We have what we need in the scriptures. Paul was trying to help these Corinthians understand that by keeping their eyes on the Lord God and the example that was being set through these special individuals that God had appointed to guide the church, that it would do that church much good. The only way the believers at Corinth can approach Christ is through a proxy, through someone who knows Christ already. Paul had come into personal contact with the resurrected Jesus and acted as that faithful proxy to communicate and display the example of Christ's likeness to people in Corinth. And so as young believers... These impressionable Christians needed to benefit from the experiences of those who had walked the road before them, from those who had the advantage of being able to talk with Christ and see the faithfulness of Jesus play out over the course of years of service to him. As young believers, it would do us well to find people who have walked for a long time in the faith and to learn from the experiences that they have shared with us. I love that our church has people of all different age groups. I would not want to be involved with one of these new kind of popular churches where it's all 20-somethings and that's all you see in the church. I feel like that would be an incredible disadvantage to the body of Christ to have everybody in one age demographic. It is 
such an invaluable resource for us to think of those who are older than us, who have walked the path, who have seen the scriptures play out in truth time and time again, who have a grounded faith that is not just based on a hope, but is based on the evidence of seeing God work time and time and time again in the lives of those who have followed after Jesus Christ. I think of Marion and Verna Warfield. I think of Charles and Louise Bradshaw. I think of individuals who have this legacy of faith and how they have been blessing to us. And think about what a hit the church takes when one of our senior saints graduates and gets promoted. We just did Promoted Sunday today. One of us, or all of us, will, if we have faith in Christ, one day be promoted to heaven. We will get to leave behind this, this flawed body. We will get to leave behind this jumbled mess of chaos. And we'll get to be in the presence of God, glorified once and for all. I look forward to that day. But think about how much the church suffers when those wonderful examples are no longer there. You can't just pick up the phone and call them and, and have them pray for you and, and talk to them about how they walked through and navigated the different pitfalls of Christian life. They have the riches of time spent with Jesus in faith. With time and experience walking in the light of Christ, our imitation improves. We can emulate Jesus better than we did when we first trusted. Let us draw upon the resources of those who have run the race well, those who have a track record of devotion to the Lord, those who know Him well and can tell the difference between true faith and hollow counterfeit faith. When you think about the Great Commission, God has called his church through the authority of Christ to go into the world and to make disciples of the nations. What does it mean to disciple? To disciple someone is to pass essential knowledge and example from one faithful believer to another believer according to the direction of God's word fueled by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. That's what discipleship is. We're given to others what God has given to us. So Romans 1, 16 through 17 doesn't mention discipleship explicitly, but listen how it's described here. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is a gospel of discipleship. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so as faithful men and women in your life have cared enough for you to share with you who Christ is and why he's so important and critical to our lives. You've been blessed by the Lord through those transactions. And if you have put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, then what was inherently sinful in you, that slave master of sin that used to grab hold of your life, the chains that he used to bind you have been broken free. You now have a freedom in, in God as you have now submitted yourself to the good leadership of a holy one who loves you and cares for you and will not lie to you or deceive you. 1 Thessalonians 2, 5 through 8 says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. This is Paul talking here about how the apostles approached the planting of that church. It says, Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. It's not that their own selves are something different than the gospel. 
their own selves, their lives, their examples were the manifestation, the fruit of the gospel. As these men had given their lives fully to Christ and were walking in the truth, they were happy to share that example with others, not to exalt themselves, but to show them that the gospel was real. We need examples. But knowing full well that the examples available to us are not perfect, we've got to be very wise in the kinds of examples we put before ourselves. That is one of the reasons why when we sing worship, you might sometimes say, well, what about that song that's on the radio, that popular song that everybody's singing right now? Why don't we sing that song? That's because we're very careful about the testimony of faith that we put before you. There are songs on the radio that are very popular right now, but maybe they contain something that doesn't exactly match the testimony of Scripture. Or perhaps the people that wrote that song and are pushing that song into the world are not living an example of true faithfulness to the Lord. We have to be careful of the examples we put before you because you might go and seek them out and see them as an example that you will pattern your life after. We've got to be cautious about that. That is why when we choose Bible study materials for our midweek studies, we're, we're very careful about that. We take our time to look through the details of how those Bible study materials came to be and who pushes those materials. We choose not to make use of some of the materials that are available here, even if they're widely popular in the world, because we have a responsibility to be aware of the kinds of people who are behind those materials and the example that they may or may not set in their conduct and in their doctrine. Now you might ask the, the question, well, isn't their teaching separate from their person? Isn't a song different from the person who made it? And the answer to that is yes and no. See, Paul here doesn't just say, pay attention to my writing. Follow my urging. He says, imitate me. The person and the message are very hard to separate. So we need to pay attention to the people that we follow. Take care whose pattern you put before you. Be cautious of who you imitate. Not everyone is worthy to serve as a model for your thought and your action. Now the key, of course, to understanding this verse that begins chapter 11, this means of discipleship that happens through righteous imitation, is the last four words. As I imitate Christ. That is why Paul is somebody worth putting our focus and attention on as an example, as a role model. As I imitate Christ. The primary standard by which we decide if we're to reflect the behavior of another person is one. Is that person making their best effort to imitate Jesus? That's it. Are they imitating Christ's affection for the Father? Are they trying to be worshipful in all that they do to bring glory to the one who made us? Are they mimicking Jesus' consideration for the Holy Spirit? Christ was never in opposition to the Holy Spirit. He cared about the work of the Spirit in people. Are they following Christ's low esteem for the temporary things of this world? Or do they seem to always be focusing and talking on and thinking about the temporary stuff that's around us? Do they put all their efforts and energies into amassing storehouses of gold for themselves? Resources that are undeniably useful for a time, but that they won't be able to take into heaven with them. Christ didn't do that. He didn't have swollen bank accounts. He was not very focused on the material trappings of the world. He knew that it had its place. But are they imitating Christ's laser focus on what was eternal? Were they, are these people imitating Christ's love for the lost around them. Do they, like Jesus, interact with those who are still filthy and who are not yet cleansed by his blood? 
Are they willing to make friendships and build bridges there and to speak the truth? Not just friendship for friendship's sake, but friendship also for the sake of the gospel so that the gospel might go out. Are they following Christ in that regard? Are they imitating Christ's hatred for sin? This isn't preached about as much in our society today, but Christ hated sin because it was disgrace to the Father. It was, a, it was a breaking of the law. You might find somebody who you think is really, really Christ-like, but if you watch their life, are they, are they opposed to sin? Or are they just really, really big on love, but not willing to talk about the sin that separates a person from the love of God? Are they matching his unwavering commitment to the truth? Are they trying to be like Christ in his dogged commitment to honesty and being forthright? Are they reflecting Christ's peace in the face of tremendous opposition? Are they trying to deal with their own trials the way that Jesus dealt with his trials? See, there is no greater compliment that a person could give you in this life than this, that you are Christ-like in your actions and your speech. Seek in all things to imitate him. And when you find someone who is doing a faithful job of following Christ, don't miss the chance to follow in that pattern. Take care, though, whose pattern you put in front of you. Be cautious of who you imitate, but also be well aware that whether you walk well or not, if your faith is public, and it has to be, brothers and sisters, if you are a true Christian, if you are open about the fact that you follow Christ, then others may very well be looking upon your life and following you as an example of faith. If they are, if they're mimicking your patterns of speech, if they're mimicking your prayerfulness and your service and sacrifice, are they, in a sense, imitating Christ? Or are they just imitating you? What pattern are you setting for them? 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 8, last scripture that I want to share with you today. Paul writes, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. Imitate Paul as he imitates Christ, but recognize also that if you bear the name of Christ, if you are living in the name of Jesus, then there will be other people that start to imitate you. Are you imitating Christ as Paul was imitating Christ? If the young Christians around you grew up to be just like you are, imitating your habits, matching your thought life, sharing the same kind of speech patterns, talking like you talk, loving like you love, spending their time and their resources the way that you do, would Christ be glorified in their lives? Put forth an example that is so centered on Christ that those who imitate you will not replicate really you, but they will rather replicate the Christ that you follow. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your grace and ask that you would in this time of growing Help us to have a desire to let our own lives be under examination as we think of these passages of Scripture, Lord God. 
I pray that you have uh, kindled thoughts in the hearts and the minds of your followers this morning about the people that you were so gracious to put in their path, people that have been a blessing to them. Perhaps, Lord God, we should get on the phone today as part of our worship of you. Make a phone call to somebody who is important to our growing, who set a good example for us, who loved us well, cared for our hearts, and who imitated you so that we had somebody tangible to follow, Lord God. But we're not here to exalt those who imitate. We're here to exalt the one we desire to imitate, which is Christ. So may all the glory and the honor and the respect and the adulation go to the one to whom there's, there's no one like him. We thank you, Lord, that our best efforts cannot match your righteousness and your holiness, Lord God, but we are so grateful that by grace you have given us a righteousness that is not our own. You've given us a purity and a holiness that can only be Christ's. And so, God, thank you for conquering our sin and for conquering death. And help us, Lord, as we walk to be careful, to not be flippant and reckless, Lord, but to be thankful for the people that you have put in our lives that have shown us Christ. We pray this all in his perfect name. Amen.